We are, as I said, thinking about children and parents at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 6. But uh, that passage comes in the midst of a series of directions to wives and husbands, children and parents, and then slaves and masters. So Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. This is God's Word. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should, should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, Obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no favoritism with him. Amen. We trust that God will bless to us this reading from his word. Well, do let's turn to Ephesians 6, these first few verses of uh, this chapter. We are in a, this section of Ephesians, which, as you can see from the reading, is dealing with these key relationships in our lives and how the gospel affects those. Uh, sometimes this is called a household code where these various uh, aspects of family life and so on are addressed. And uh, you remember what we have seen already in this book? We, we've, we've looked in the first half of Ephesians about what God has done for us by His grace, how He has saved us and called us to Himself. And then in the second half of the book, we get the so what, we get the now this is how you should live. This is what a, a worthy life looks like. And, and we, we saw that at the beginning of chapter 4, what a, what a worthy life is that we're called to. And we, we see in chapter 5 as well that it's a spirit-filled life. And Paul, as he begins to 
to earth those into practical examples doesn't go to anything incredibly grand or dramatic. Uh, rather, he chooses to talk about marriages and families and workplaces. It's quite uh, notable. Uh, Paul uh, does not think about how we appear on a Sunday or how we uh, feel we are doing. He focuses on these particularly sort of ordinary relationships that are common to so many people, marriage and family and work. It is in these nitty-gritty areas of life that real spiritual transformation is to be seen. And so, uh, we might conclude, therefore, that a person who considers himself spiritual but is overbearing with his wife, is domineering with his children, and is caustic with his work colleagues well, that is not a spiritual man. He is kidding himself. He, there is a sense in which if you want to, to find out how we are really doing in the Christian life, uh, those are the people that we should be asking, your spouse, your children, your colleagues. Quite a thought, isn't it? But it, but it is telling us that, that, that a faith that doesn't transform us at some level is not really a, a faith that works, James would say. It is a faith without works and is dead. And so tonight we're, we're thinking particularly about children and parents, and, and we have looked fairly recently at the fifth commandment, and we've said there that, of course, these are areas that sometimes for some people uh, throw up a whole host of, of uh, sore areas of their lives, very difficult relationships perhaps with parents in the past, maybe uh, deep, deep concerns about children, and, and maybe for some of us who are children, maybe as we None of us get to the end of a day and think we've, we've really done a great job as a parent. And perhaps if we were looking to look into the internet browsing a, a history of, of many of our computers, we might find that our kids have crept in in the middle of the night and typed into Google, how can I change my family? How can I divorce my parents? Is there a way for me to legally move across the road and live with the neighbors? Well, I, I'm reminded of the person who, who said uh, once I have uh, three principles for child rearing, but I've got no children. And then we met him a few years later, and he said, well, I've got three children now, and I've got no principles. Um, it seems to be a, a very presumptuous thing, doesn't it, to, to, to begin to talk about children and parents. But of course, we're, we're not trying to share experiences or, or sort of homespun wisdom. We're trying to get to grips with what the Bible says. And, and I have to say that some of the very best material that I've read on this has been from John Stott, who, when he read it, was an older single man, and yet it's just gold. We don't fall into that sort of uh, thinking that is common in some quarters that says you have to have stood in these shoes to really begin to understand something, and you have to have succeeded in something to begin to understand something. I think as we look at God's Word, it, it, it sort of cuts across that. Now, as we've seen in common with these three areas, uh, family and, and uh, marriage and, and workplace, in common with these three areas is this idea of submission. And this uh, thought that, that we are to uh, have a, a submissive spirit generally, uh, Paul says to us in chapter 5, verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he shows three particular examples of where that is to be the case. It means putting the other person's needs before ours, above our own. And we, we noted last time that, that John Stott spoke about uh, husbands loving their wives as, a, as, a, as a, another form of, of putting their needs 
in front of their own. So we, we, are, we are putting others in front of ourselves in so many areas in terms of what we understand our Christian duties to be. Well, let's turn then to what it is we are to understand here and what is said here. First of all, children. This is very simple. We're just going to look at what it says about children and then what it says about fathers and parents. Verses 1 to 3, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Now, the first thing we need to say is the very fact that children are addressed here is notable because in the days in which this were written, uh, children were seen as being of very little value. They, they didn't have rights as such. They didn't play a useful part in society. Their, their value was in their potential rather in their actuality. And Paul addresses them here, and he speaks to them directly. And in doing so, he shows us that they are part of the church and are to be considered part of the church. They are not potential part of the church. They are part of the family of God. So, we, we uh, understand that Paul is saying that the children are not, not the, uh, the church of tomorrow, as sometimes people say they are part of the church of today. And he shows us also the flip side of that is that they are answerable to the Lord for their living and for their actions. The fact that, that they are addressed in this letter is also notable in that it implies that they were present when the church was gathering for worship. And that's really, really important. Now, I'm all for a our children going out at different times to age-appropriate programs and so on, and we work hard at that here. But there is something incredibly valuable about just all of us being together in church together and lifting the name of the Lord on high and opening His Word together, even if our little ones don't always understand it completely. Something very important about that. Before COVID, for example, we, we used to have a, a larger number of uh, younger children out at evening worship. Great to see some here tonight. Um, but it would be great if we, we had more of that, wouldn't it? Now, the particular uh, responsibility emphasized here is to be uh, obedient to parents. It's not a, an all-encompassing obedience. It is delineate it by that little phrase, in the Lord. In other words, a child is not to obey a parent whenever they tell them to do things that are wrong, but it is a far-reaching obedience nonetheless, as far as possible, as far as possible. Be obedient to your parents. John, John Stott, again, looks at a couple of scenarios where he begins to unpack this and where those boundaries are. He says, suppose a young person is a Christian and wants to get baptized, and uh, his parents are, are not Christians, and they forbid them to. What should that young person do? And John Stott says that when uh, they are under their parents' authority in this sense, that they should uh, delay that baptism and obey their parents in that way, putting it off, but on the other hand, if the parents were to tell them you must not worship the Lord or to be a Christian at all, well, that would be something that that young person simply could not do. It would be to disobey the, the will of God. 
And, and we've uh, applied some of that sometimes in our own situation here where uh, someone perhaps was finding that there wasn't a lot of parental support for joining the church at a certain period. And, and we've said to them, look, we, we, we'll treat you as a member here. Uh, Honor your parents in this and, and, and you're here and we, we'll, we'll encourage you in that. And then there was a time whenever they were able to do that. So you see what, what, what Paul is saying here, that in the normal course of a, a child's a, a, a growing up, their parents stand in for God, however inadequately. They are over the child as stewards, and so obedience is to be given as to uh, the Lord. So if you're a younger person, that means obedience is to be given to your parents even when it's not what you want, even when it doesn't seem to make sense to you, even when it cramps your style, even when your friend's parents take a completely different line and uh, seem to make a much better job of being parents than your parents do. And the fact that, that, that this is addressed to children as opposed to being addressed to parents indicates that this obedience is to be offered before it's enforced. So it's not saying here, make, make your children obey. There maybe is a, a place for that in some circumstances, but, but it's saying, children, make sure you obey. Uh, because, of course, what matters in terms of obedience is not just uh, external, is it? It's from the heart. A grudging and slavish external obedience is not what's called for here. You know, we've all heard of the little chap who was ordered to stand up, and, and he whispered to himself through gritted teeth, I'm standing up on the outside, but I'm sitting down on the inside, you know. Um, it, this is an obedience that's freely offered because your parents are there by God's appointment for you. And I'm sure that, that, that many of us who uh, look back on, on our childhood uh, think, goodness, really wish I'd heard that maybe explained to me a little bit more clearly and thought about that a little bit more fully as I had opportunity to put it into practice. So, if you're a young person and you want to measure your spiritual growth, by all means, look at your prayer life, look at your Bible reading, but do ask yourself, am I finding it easier to obey my parents? Because an increasingly dominant influence of the Holy Spirit in your life will produce that in you. It's where God wants to take you. As you grow, there's a point where that obedience changes into honor, as the fifth commandment says, and uh, that is, is slightly different. Uh, that that uh, obedience is not required as, as, as we uh, grow older, but it is an honor that is required. Now, having said all of that, there's a responsibility on us as parents to, to teach obedience and to encourage obedience and uh, to encourage them to offer obedience as unto uh, the Lord. It is, it is not for the, the child to, uh, dis to discover it and work it out for themselves, but by the time they come to be able to understand this, they should know what, what obedience is. And we did see something of that as we looked at the fifth commandment. We said there that the central task, if we're to say what one job is that parents have to do, it is to show children that it is a good thing to live under authority. 
our, our, our very nature, the, the, the biases within us that the, the fall has produced, says to us, we want to be free from all authority. We want to cast off all of these shackles. Satan has whispered that, and that echo continues down through the generations. And our parents' job, or our job as parents, is to show our children that it's a good thing to live under authority, that it is to be a benevolent authority, it is to be a loving authority, but that under that authority is the safest and most secure place to be, because then they will begin to say, I'm designed to live under authority. And I'm going to grow up knowing that I'm to be under authority, ultimately under the authority of the Lord. It's not up to me to follow my heart and work out my own path. I'm going to follow His path, and that's a good thing. Now, you notice that there are some reasons that are given here for children to obey parents. First of all, you see it is right. You see that? Um, uh, that uh, it says that in verse 1. Uh, most commentators suggest that what this means is that it's sort of everyone knows this is right. It's a, it's a natural law thing. It's a natural order of things. It's the, it's the fact that you can, you can watch the, I was going to say the pandas in Belfast Zoo. There aren't pandas in Belfast Zoo, aren't there? There, there are other bears, aren't there? There are spectacled bears, I think. Red pandas. Red pandas in Belfast Zoo. You can watch the red pandas in Belfast Zoo disciplining their, their cubs, their pandalets. And, and uh, I, I and you'll, you'll, you'll see that there's something built into how we are made as people. There's a naturalness to it, that parents discipline their children, that they bring them up, that they guide them, that they teach them. And, and Paul is saying that there's a rightness to all of this. It's true in all society that they hold the obedience of children in high regard. It's one of the things that makes for a stable society. And of course, conversely, it's one of the indications that a society is in trouble whenever children are ruling the roost or are unable to be controlled. Think of Romans 1. Since they did not think it worthwhile to retain knowledge of God, He gave them over to a depraved mind to what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent and arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. And then it says, they disobey their parents. Now, now the fact that, that we live in a world where that is just so common and, and we just think, well, that's what kids do, it just indicates that we're a society in trouble. Paul says it's right for children to be obedient. He also says it's, it's godly. It's the will of God. For Paul reminds them then of that fifth commandment in verse 2, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Now here, as I say, we're talking about honoring rather than obeying. In the early stages of life, those two things are pretty close together. But as we as we get older, those things sort of separate a little bit. Part of parenting is letting our children make their own decisions uh, so that we don't require obedience from, from them when they reach adulthood. Sometimes we can go wrong in, in that area. But that requirement to honor our parents never disappears as long as they live. And, and, and Paul is, is drawing our attention to the fact that it's the godly thing to do. It's the will of God for us. The Bible's like a map that shows us how to live. One of those ways is, is that we honor our parents. And, and, and he emphasizes the promise 
that goes along with it. In the Old Testament, there were lots of penalties for those who did not obey their parents, some very, very severe penalties. But Paul chooses not to go there, but he emphasizes rather the, the, the positive promise that comes along with this commandment, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. It's created a lot of problems for preachers, of course, as you can imagine. doesn't mean that children who honor their parents will live longer than those who don't. Uh, of course, it doesn't mean that exactly. In the original promise uh, context, this was promising God's uh, blessings on the promised land. And even there, there would have been exceptions. But in, in, in this case, it is pointing to a, a general blessing. He's saying, you know, usually this is the case. It's, it's less material and so on. But, but the blessing of God will be seen and felt by those who, who choose this path. It's, it's for our good that we do this. Certainly the case at a societal level, isn't it? Great blessing in living in a society where children honor their parents in this sort of way. Some of you are older, are able to look back and remember how it used to be. Somebody was just telling me this week, used to live in Hill Street. Doors were always open. Didn't need to lock anything. Uh, now you need to lock yourself in. So, so we, we can see that this, this obligation is laid on children and young people. Obedience. And I hope that we see that part of what we do as we're seeking to follow the Lord is saying, now, Lord, there's some of this that I don't find all that easy, but you know what? You've put me here and you've put these folk over me here. And, and as part of my response to you, I want you to help me to obey them. It's a heart thing, and I want you to help me feel it. It's a heart thing. It's not just an action thing. Now, with all of these relationships, there are two sides, and actually, in some ways, it is the second part of these relationships that the hearers of this letter would have found particularly notable, because nobody disputed that children were to obey their parents in that culture. But now, Paul turns to fathers. Verse 4, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Several things to, to say here. This is the bit that's revolutionary, as we said, because in the ancient world, uh, certainly in Roman society, there was really no limit to a father's authority over a child. Some dreadful stories. A, a father had the power not only to punish, but in many cases, the power of life and death. They could decide whether a child should live. You, you know that ancient practice of exposure. If an unwanted child was just to be left at the roadside to perish, it's the father that can make that decision. And so the very fact that Paul was telling fathers that they should do something was really, really significant. It's just a wee reminder, isn't it, that, that the Bible does not sit comfortably with all cultures or any culture. We think that there are some things that it says that are just not easily accepted in our world, but that it was acceptable in some other world. And, and there are, the reality is there's, there's always something where the Scriptures just cuts across the values of our society far, far more than we would even realize. And of course, it's not because it's from another culture that it does that. It's because it's from God. 
God is calling us to His standards, not the standards of ancient Israel, not the standards of, of the first century. He's calling us to His standards, to Himself. And so, it's not surprising that it's going to cut across our culture. It's going to say things that every culture is going to react to by saying, by, by, by saying well, that, that, that's pretty outrageous, because no culture measures up. Everyone is out of step with God. And, and, and this ran against what was normal in that culture, because here it's calling for fathers to be, as Stott says, self-controlled, gentle, patient educators of their children. It'd be great if we could get some cards printed, give them to new dads, wouldn't it? Self-controlled, patient educators of our children. Another thing we should say here is that it highlights fathers. There's a sense in which a father here can be taken to some degree as fathers and mothers, just as we see that brothers is often taken as brothers and sisters in the Scriptures, but there's a sense here, too, in which this is highlighting something very, very important, and that is that ultimately there's a responsibility that lies on fathers for their children. I think our culture has tended to abdicate this. I've got to say, I've not done a brilliant job on that. If it wasn't for my wife, our kids would be um, different. Um. <laughs> Sorry, I'll stop now. Um, but, but fathers, fathers need to be involved in these responsibilities, don't they? And, and Paul then also says, there's a real warning here, do not exasperate your children. This parallel passage in Colossians 3.21, where fathers are told not to embitter their children. Now, what does that mean? Well, again, the commentators say that one of the most likely contexts here is, is discipline. It was one of the father's roles. And so, in the, in the discipline of your children, do not exasperate them. As you, as you bring them up to, to nurture them, do not exasperate them. If we're over, how do we do that? All sorts of ways. If we're over authoritarian, our children feel, feel they're always getting God at. If we're picky and pulling them up on every little thing. If we're arbitrary in our discipline, we lack consistency. It's one thing one day and another thing another so that they don't know where the, the boundaries are. If we're unjust with them, if, we're, if we exercise favoritism, if we use sarcasm or humiliation or ridicule, these are things that exasperate our children, don't they? Maybe for some of us, we look back over the years and we realize they exasperated us. Martin Lloyd-Jones highlights a particular danger as we discipline our children. He says, that we must not do that whenever we are angry ourselves. Here's a word for us, because we failed in that case to discipline ourselves. This is what he says. When you are disciplining a child, you should first have controlled yourself. What right have you to say your child needs discipline when you obviously need it yourself? Self-control, the control of temper, is an essential prerequisite in the control of others. Discipline is necessary. We've said that. Previous generations may be tended towards excessive discipline. Ours tends towards perhaps uh, too little. But what is needed in either case is controlled discipline. But there's a positive command here too, isn't there? Bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Children are not to make their own way, but to be taught the faith. Don't, don't take this nonsense of, well, we're just going to let them we're, not, we're, we're going to give them a free reign, and then they're going to be able to decide themselves whenever they're older. What rubbish. 
If you're not discipling them, the world is discipling them. That means we have to be living it, doesn't it? They're going to see. They're going to see it before they even hear it. And that phrase, bring them up, is a really tender word. It means nourish them. It means feed them. One translator has rear them tenderly. Calvin says, fondly cherish them. It's recognizing children's vulnerability, their tenderness. They can have, they can be easily crushed. They can have their spirits broken. Great need for positive encouragement. Some of you who are older remember Bert Finlay. I've quoted this often, Bert first poured it down, a sort of associate, he, he, he used to say to me, he says, you know, you can, you can encourage people to heights that you can never drive them. We'd do well to remember that, wouldn't you? We can encourage our children to heights that we can never drive them. We can encourage them into the Lord's ways to say to them, isn't God good? And set an example. When we teach them, that the fifth commandment is to honor their parents, to live before them in such a way. We've got to ask them, is it easy for them to honor us? Is it natural for them? We've got to try to be those parents that they delight to obey. Be able to say to them, not just do as I say, but do as I do. Wouldn't it be great if our children grew up wanting to be like us because they thought that we were like Jesus? What a job this is. What a challenge. I, I, I know that, that if we're parents, we feel our inadequacy in these things so much. And in fact, I, I know that some parents have felt their inadequacy so much that it's been the very, very thing that has led them to Christ. Remember the first time I ever did a, a, a Christianity Explored in Ballygrainy? It was because a dad said to me, I'd done a children's talk, and I talked about passing on the faith. And, and he, he talked to me and he said, do you know, I really want this for my daughter. And I said, uh, how, how, do, how, do I, how do I put that into her? How do I get her to think like that? And I was able to ask him, well, you know, is it real for you? And he said, no, it's not. And we started off a little Christian Explored course. And by the end of that, he and his wife had both come to faith in Christ because the responsibility of bringing up these little ones weighs so heavily upon us sometimes. It should point us to Jesus. Let's be realistic. Children can go astray from the best of examples and the best of opportunities. I know some of us are hugely burdened that our children are not walking with the Lord, and, and uh, the fact is that, uh, that we've just got to pray for them and pray for them. One of the commentators uh, draws attention to Adam and Eve's children. No doubt they were aware of how good God had been to them, and they would have taught their children about the Lord, and yet one of them went one way and one of them went another. And so if your child is wandering, just pray on. And also, let's be encouraged too. We're going to feel our feelings in these things. And the reality is that some who have had poor opportunities can outstrip all others in the pursuit of God. We're not prisoners of our past, are we? Grace triumphs over that. The Bible does not allow us to do that sort of blame shifting. I am the way I am because of the background that I've had. Joseph tells us about that, doesn't he? He came from the most crazy family and yet pursued God with an incredible passion. You can too. Just to, to, to set these verses in context, we did that a little bit at the start. 
But what is it in the context of even this book? It's in the context of this great story of what? A father and a son. A father who loved his son exceptionally, who never exasperated him for a moment. God the Father. His love for his son is, for example, seen at his baptism. Remember when Jesus comes out of the water, there's a voice which says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. With him I'm well pleased. What affirmation from his father. And then there's a son who's obedient to his father. He says, not my will, but yours be done. It's my delight to do your will. Even when it costs him. Even when he knows obedience will cast him out and make him suffer beyond what is describable. He does it. He takes it. And the, the amazing thing is that this God, Father, Son, and Spirit comes to us by His Spirit, and He indwells us if we're His. He indwells us if we're children to enable us to obey our parents, and parents to enable us to nourish and feed our children in the Lord. Who is sufficient for these things? Well, God, by His grace, gives us what we need, and we look to Him. Let's take a moment to pray together.